I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. if you be as those cheek roses proclaim you are no less. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Quinton Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, Measure for Measure, directed by Dominic Dromgoul for the Globe Theatre in 2015 and written in 1604 by William Shakespeare. There's a lot of discussion in the world about Shakespeare's place in the English canon and education system. A lot of people saying that we'd have a better time of it if we used work that was more relevant to students and to modern life. We here at Heavenly Shows actually sort of agree with that. Shakespeare belongs in a drama class more than it does in every English class, but we disagree with the notion that Shakespeare's not relevant. It's great drama, and great drama is work that talks about big ideas in the small context of actual people. What does a Shakespeare play relevant to 2020 look like? We watched Measure for Measure, and I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's about the nature of justice and mercy and overreaching of the state when it comes to doing violence against human beings and about corruption and how vital it is for us to emphasize ethical conduct when it comes to how we view our leaders. But I couldn't possibly draw any lines between that and 2020. Maybe they're right. There's nothing to learn at all. And now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of Measure for Measure in one tweet. The Duke leaves Angelo in charge of the city and he begins wielding the rod of justice against people who couldn't keep it in their pants. Isabel's brother couldn't, and now he's going to get the chop. Unless someone has a brilliant plan. Someone like the Duke. Pot twist! So, Luke, what did you think of Measure for Measure? I knew nothing about Measure for Measure going into it. It's not a play that I had... um really heard much about or if I had heard anything about it that I didn't sort of put it together in context so I came into it completely blind and completely um just naive yeah absolutely naive naive to what it is oh you're so lucky and it's really great Uh, it's I was so surprised by some of the what what I perceived to be the plot twists which was essentially uh, the character of Angelo being evil right I, I didn't expect that at all. If you go through my notes, I, I literally write, wow, Angelo's a great character. And then like three lines later, I'm like, oh, oh no, he's not a good dude. He's making bad choices in his life. And so I think I had kind of had the the optimal measure for measure experience in that way. Yeah. And I, I really liked that. Um, I, on the other hand, had a slightly different, uh, I guess, take on it in the sense that I 
had some context coming into it because, uh, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I did a scene from Othello as part of my university assessment, like doing a scene from that. Yeah. Um, a couple of my colleagues in my class did a scene from Measure from Measure. And uh, that scene was challenging. Yeah. Um, both for my friends and colleagues and my peers to undertake the scene. I remember having conversations with uh, both of those people um, as they wrestled with the content of the piece, of the scene that they were trying to place. But also just the content of the scene was quite confronting. Yeah. Um, And so I guess I had a little bit more reservation coming into watching this, but I tried to keep that to myself so I didn't taint your initial reactions. I mean, it's interesting. It's not... um... It's it's it is definitely rough. There's some very um uh hard things explored in this play, especially around sort of the role of women and the role of women, the role of morality, the ro- the the role of um religious purity. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of exploring that, but I feel like unlike something like Taming of the Shrew, I feel like this explores that in a very sensitive way in yeah a sense. well it's interesting because like obviously this is what the third globe production we've seen now yes three could be four no three three definitely three. the third um and so you know they definitely have a style they definitely have a vibe um and you know obviously we had issues with that during taming of the shrew but we didn't have issues of that during um the Two wives, Mary wives, Mary wives. Thank you. It's been um, a long time. It has been a lot of shows, ladies we, and gentlemen. <laughs> I just <laughs> we have I, so many left to go. So, we're not even halfway. <laughs> um, but I just like I found this performance, and I found this adaptation, and I found the Globe's version of it to be interesting. It wasn't. I think because I was still bringing a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in from Taming of the Shrew, I was expecting certain things and I was expecting to be angry again. Um, But having watched it and having had time between watching and finally then recording this podcast, I've kind of mulled over some things and I've considered some things and... I think it was a much better production than I gave it credit for where, as we were watching it. Yeah, I mean, to talk about The Globe uh, and this being our third Globe piece, The Globe definitely has a voice. It definitely yeah. has a theatrical voice and they definitely do things in a certain way. I do wonder if we should make this the last Globe one we watch. Um Oh, but there's, like, the I reason know. why we were watching some of them is specifically for, I think it's the... Is it The Merchant of Venice? There's no, one of them that of does a wonderful... They, they do a wonderful execution of the gender role swap. Yeah. It, look, we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at what we have. Yeah, okay. um, I just... I feel like... I mean, I don't could... feel like we're overwatching the globe. There are 40 of these things that we're watching. Absolutely. But there, there's... Maybe we need to reinvestigate where we have options, taking yeah, other options. I agree with that. Because the whole point of seeing different things and not just, for example, sitting down and watching all 39 of the BBC television Shakespeare yeah. ones, which we have, 
is to get different views. And yeah. we're not really getting different views from the globe in terms of a performance aspect, which is the stuff that we can really talk to, right? Yeah. Um, Agreed. Now, this is our first problem play, um, which is sort of a, a Shakespearean term talking specifically about it being somewhere between a comedy and a tragedy. Um, usually the the way I sort of look at it and define it is that it's sort of a comedy in structure, but a tragedy in tone. Yeah. Um, and I think this very much, especially through sort of the, 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 the middle third gets to that in a, in a very real way. I feel like they struck the balance between comedy and tragedy really well. I think some of the choices they made really helped with that. Um, yeah, I agree. I really loved, for example, um, at the beginning of the play, again, they used that crowd participation. But in this time, I think it was much more effective because they had um, whorehouses, like little pop-up tents mm. in amongst the, the gallery crowd. And they had prostitutes and you know, dirty old men weaving in in about the crowd, basically giving it that feel of what it probably was like in Shakespeare's day. That obviously connected into the theme of the play as well. But the one failing I thought that they could have taken it that step further was to basically teach the audience how important their cheers and their boos were. Yeah. Because I think this is definitely the kind of play, as you said, it's it's a warning play or it's a teaching play. Um, it's really important for the crowd to participate with their cheers and their boos for them to engage in that process. And I, I don't think the audience just got there. It would have been hard for them though, because this is not a, this is not a play of really well-defined heroes and villains, right? This is a, this is a play of tweeners. So this is not a play of, fa- of play of baby faces and heels. Like, yes, Angelo is a bad dude, right? Yeah. But Angelo is conflicted and yes, the Duke is a good guy, but the Duke does some stuff that's a little bit, you know. Yeah, but there are definitely the there are definitely some spots in this play where you can see, like in wrestling, yes. where the audience is meant to cheer and it's meant to boo in certain places, right? Absolutely. But as you say, in the context of today, it's probably less black and white, whereas back in Shakespeare's day, it probably was more black and white. And I mean, in any in any duologue, in any scene with two people together, there is always going to be an antagonist and a protagonist. That's just how yeah. that's how drama is structured. But yeah. I'm, I'm talking more about over the holistic action of the play, and I think that, um, especially those two characters, especially the Duke and especially Angelo, are the rudders with which you can steer this whole show. Yeah. Um. Like, in this we have an Angelo who knows that he is doing wrong when he decides that he's going to try and exploit Isabella to have sex with her. Yeah. Um, to save her brother's life. But I don't think we really get a tortured Angelo. He's, he struggles with that decision just before he makes it, but once he makes it, he's like, woo, I got away with it. Um... And then at the same time, you know, as for example, I've read about uh, productions of this play. Yeah. Not the Globe production, but different productions of this play that have like a really tortured Angelo who doesn't like the decision he makes. Yeah. And a cruel Duke. Yeah. Who, who is, yeah. yeah who is, seems um, flippant with the way he dels, dels out justice. Yeah. And that's, if nothing else, that's fascinating. Mm. That's fascinating that within the same text, without take and without making no edits to the to the play, you can really change the way these characters are, are, are sort of angled. 
Yeah, this is an excellent pick. And again, one of the reasons why it was selected for one of our pieces of assessment is that this this whole piece is so dependent on the choices that an actor and a director make with regards to the storytelling because the base text is the same but if you change the nature of the characters and if you change the nature of their decisions because the decisions are written in stone the decisions are there but the motivation behind those decisions are an actor's choice they're a director's choice i think that there's sort of two ways to approach this play, right? Yeah. And I think that if you make really interesting, weird decisions with the characters, then the whole play from an audience's point of view becomes character-focused in a, in a, in a big way. Whereas mm. I think the way that the Globe has done, done it, they're focusing less on the characters per se and more generally on the themes of the play. So it's more thematically focused. And... I think for a problem play, for something where it's meant to be making big statements about how the world works and about justice and morality and ethics, I don't think that's necessarily any worse a choice than going directly character-focused. Like, Mm. us as actors, we like to see character-focused work. We like to see people doing work. But I think in this particular circumstance, it's... Uh, it's a good choice. It's a good choice to go in, go in harder on the, on the themes of the play. Yeah. While we're here, can we talk a bit about some of the individual choices? Because obviously, yes, the overall vibe was to focus on the story of the play and those bigger, larger problems. But can we can we talk a little bit about some of those individualistic choices? that some of the actors made because for me yeah. obviously being a person as we said that is more focused on character driven stuff when i'm looking at the actors themselves yeah. um you know a- and some of the things that i feel were weaker were because of the fact that it was a a theme driven performance rather than a character driven story right yeah so like um, the actor playing the Duke made some really wonderful and unexpected choices for a Duke character. Yeah. But the fact that he had consistency and that through line made those choices quite delightful and and believable for me personally. However, in opposition, the actor playing Angelo and the actor actress playing Isabella, again, really wonderful actors and really wonderful performances, but I didn't necessarily wholly swallow Angelo's heel turn, if you will. Um, and I, I also ha- had issues with Isabella's constantly weepy eyes. Like from when you meet Isabella to about 10 minutes after you've met Isabella for the rest of the play, she's just got weepy, like crying eyes pretty much the entire rest of the play. And I'm like, you know, having having a cry is okay, and I've got I've got strong opinions on the use of crying on stage for various reasons, which I'm not going to go into here. <laughs> um, if you want to know, come to one of my workshops. Um, but um, I just think, you know, there is a time for grief, there is a time for tears, but then there is also a time for that to pass right so i disagree with you 
Okay. Uh, on, on quite a lot of what you just said, but yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll go step by step here. Starting with Isabella, yes, she is a bit weepy and a bit, you know, uh, <laughs> she's a bit weepy eyed, a bit runny nosed, but I think she still played with an incredible strength. And I think the choices to do that sort of that begrieved thing makes the strength of her character even more through contrast, right? I think, like, she's an incredibly determined character mm. um, doing uh, that is undergoing an impossible stress. Mm. And I think you can show that sort of cognitive dissonance in her. And I think that there was a success there. I really do. Um, to go, go, go then to Angelo. I think I was sort of 85% convinced by Angelo. Yeah. Um, a lot of the issues I had with it were probably directorial, um, because Angelo in this is sort of fascinating for a while and then he's suddenly and irrevocably not, Mm. you know, he's, um. And this is what I mean by the heel turn didn't quite wasn't quite swallowable for me because I was like it was too it was the the turn was too sharp for me so I'll tell you what I liked um there's a scene with with Angelo and Isabella Mm. and it's when they first meet and they're having this wonderful discussion about sort of the nature of of justice Mm. and the nature of law and truth and uh, in my notes here, I've written that it's um, uh, reminds me of like a West Wing episode, like Ugh. two intelligent clarion voices yeah. discussing a thing. And then it's the next scene we have with him where he makes the decision, well, I'm going to ask her to sleep with me. Yeah. And if she does that, I will release her brother. But it's interesting because the interpretation I received from the direction of that moment yeah. was that until that moment, Angelo did not, could not perceive lust he could not perceive um desire he could not he was not a man that was persuaded by such fleshly things but upon meeting someone who was his intelligence equal that all of a sudden opened his mind to lustful desires and fleshly desires and so it's almost like meeting this woman has corrupted him and so now the only way he knows how to deal with it is to attempt to rape her. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The like it's it's, the... it's like they've it's like they're saying that Angelo, this perfectly reasoned man who is about justice and 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 um, discipline and having pure and moral society, has been undermined because a woman was intelligent. I don't know that necessarily that that is the that is the sort of the view there. It, I'm it, just it, saying that's, got... that's what the heel turn felt like, which was why it was hard to swallow for me because I don't think that's what they were going for. And, that, and that's but probably that's what the heel turn felt it was. Yeah, yeah. Because right? I think he, in that scene where he's talking to her before he then decides that he's going to try and exploit her, Yeah, I really got from him these nuances of him being so impressed by Isabella and so yeah. like, so taken with Isabella. Yeah. I I really got that. And then for me that made the the next scene, the 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 turn to evil, the turn to villainy scene, 
it, it made it really work for me. Yeah. What made it not work for me and where I say that sort of, I think that Angelo got 85% of the way there is the decision they make to refocus. They refocus onto the Duke because the story refocuses onto the Duke. Yeah. And then we're not seeing anything of him being tortured. We're not seeing anything of Angelo being uh, worried about his decision. And the whole story turns to him being unaware that he's being tricked by the Duke. Right? Yeah. So my my concern with it is there. I think that is where the Angelo character is weak and where the, the work that they've done falls down. Not in the earlier section. And this is this is just an area where you and I disagree. Yeah. Like we you and I both have issues with the Angelo character <laughs> just in, in different, different places. places. <laughs> yeah. Um but to 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 move on to the Duke. Yeah. I really liked the Duke's performance. It was weird, man. Yeah, it was, it was it was so unexpected, but I too also really enjoyed it for yeah, and he, I can't I can't really explain why. Yeah, uh, to, it's it's rough to explain. You, I I would recommend that people listening to this podcast try and seek out if nothing else clips from the the globe production of measure for measure to see it he is um maybe dorky is yeah. is a term for it he, he's 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 a, he's a real geek yeah and he you know i really like it when actors make the decision to just do weird stuff in characters yeah and to take with or, or not not necessarily even when they make weird decisions like when for whatever reason they take it differently and the, the two the two examples i have here when um the book of mormon came to melbourne for the first time yes. the guy who they got they got an american guy in to play elder cunningham and he made all of these decisions that were so not Josh Gad, yeah. right? It was n- the the furthest thing from an imitation of the original Broadway cast, yeah. right? And it was some, gorgeous. Some of those choices were good, and some of those choices were bad, but it was all interesting to watch. Yeah. And another great example of that is um, the actor who plays Aaron Burr in the London cast, the original London cast of Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, that's Giles Torreira, who is a, um, he, I believe he has what looks like a, a repaired cleft palate. Yeah, that uh, or a lisp or, uh, or something. Some kind of and so physical. He, and he, he's got that lisp, and obviously it's a very um, articulate show. And for the first five seconds, you're like, oh, that's an interesting choice. And then after five seconds, you're just like, oh, I love this. Yeah. Because he brings this this almost sliminess to Burr that was never brought to it in in, in New York. Exactly. And it's just, it's so fascinating. I, I just, I and really- And I think lo- that also reinforces the point that we don't all have to be, like, I think, you know, the acting world- needs to be represented by so many different varieties of people. Well, it, it it definitely needs to be represented by all kinds of different varieties of people. And look, I will say... We just don't all have to be perfect Adonis, Adonis specimens. Uh, yes, absolutely. I will say that I think there are certain roles that need to be a certain way. Yeah, because you know, there's stereotypes. For, for, for example, as someone who has played Shrek, well, I was never not going to do Shrek. Yeah, you know, that was never really an option. No. But if you're doing measure for measure and you can make weird decisions as the Duke. Absolutely. Go for it. Just do it. Um, the other character I'd like to talk about just before we move on to talking about sort of the, the, the storyline. Um, I'd like to just quickly mention uh, Pompey, the pimp, um, who is a, he's a character that's kind of 
brought in in the middle and he's uh he ends up, i think at part part of it he is a manservant and part Was of he, it he he kind of hung out with master froth and elbow yes yeah that that whole group yeah. of guys i thought were great um but but pompey specifically um there's a lot in him that reminds me of um alfred doolittle from my fair lady <laughs> um uh so henry higgins my fair lady refers to uh, Alfred Doolittle as um, the 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 most truly original moralist in England, like he's got all these fascinating ideas about morality, and and in in Alfred Doolittle's case, it's like you know I can't afford to have morals, Governor. Like you know, a man such as myself, I can only do what I can. And and Pompey's got the same thing. He has this great yeah. this great series of dialogue where he talks about how um, he was born into the, the into his crimes, right? Yeah, and it, that I've, we've seen that a couple of other times in Shakespeare as well, mm. and it, it's it's such a wonderfully modern idea that I think a lot of people miss today. Yeah. Is this idea that you know crime is not actually caused by evil people doing evil things, right? It's like crime is largely caused by circumstance. Yes, and that's very much what this play is talking, talking about, about. Yeah, in its in its storyline. Yeah. Which is an excellent segue to move on to talking about. <laughs> you love a good segue. Oh, I do. Uh, that one was smooth. Um, this play, in terms of plot points, and I think we're basically going to be talking more about the themes of the play here. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we've as we've sort of already discussed, the the play has you know some big big ideas and big issues that it kind of touches on yeah so we're talking about sort of the um angelo is given the 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 duty of justice and his duty of justice turns to tyranny yeah so there's the 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 sides of the coin between justice and tyranny and about sort of virtue and debauchery yeah so i that's that's what i've got here i've got that the play is about virtue versus debauchery you can't you can't allow either to be a dominating factor, right? You can't have all virtue and you can't have all debauchery. But in saying that, not all virtue is virtuous. No. And so it forces both the characters within their world and us as viewers to ask that question around justice and morality. But it, it's a really uncomfortable asking. Yeah. Um, you know, what is the greater sin is, you know, because... For those of you who don't know anything about the story we're talking about, um, a guy called Claudio, who is Isabella's brother. brother, who we've talked about before. So Isabella's a nun, and her little brother Claudio went and knocked up his girlfriend before they were married. His, his fiance. Well, yes, his fiance. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of the play, and Luke and I diverged on our interpretation of that moment at the beginning of the play, but I thought Claudio said that he had married his fiance in secret because they were still awaiting the blessing of her father. And I and... think, I think that what they say, and this is, this is certainly what the text says. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, as, as I said, Luke goes from actually reading the text and I'm going from what I heard in the performance. So it's yeah. a, it's an interpretive version of that... the hearing of it and with subtitles and such. So, so my, my interpretation was that um, everything except for the church wedding had happened. Yeah. Like they, they had not been married in the eyes of God, but there were everything else was the case. Yeah. So either way, in their minds, they're committed to each other. It's going to be okay. We'll, you know, just have a sneaky, you know, 
conjugal visit on the yeah. side before the you know married in the sight of God or whatever or you know official whatever however the officiation of marriage was left to do was done they jumped the gun and she has fallen pregnant and so um because this dorky duke has gone on a sabbatical and left angelo in charge angelo is a bit of a um how shall we say um purist uh well definitely definitely a purist but he would have the idea was that he was trying to be uh, purita- puritanical. Yeah, puritanical that- in a way. He 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 saw he saw Vienna, which is the city in which uh, Measure for Measure is set. He saw saw it as a corrupt city, corrupted by sexual debauchery. Yeah, but and Shakespeare's he was going- using it as a as a sideways thing of what was the group of people who were the people walking around saying no theater, no fun should be had. The Puritans, Puritans. Yeah, the yeah. Puritans. Yeah, I was right. Puritans. Yeah. So um Angelo is is supposed to be portrayed as this Puritan character. And so what the Duke has said to Angelo, because Vienna's gotten out of control, is the Duke has said, Look, um Angelo, I'm gonna go on a sabbatical and I'm gonna leave the town in charge to you and by the time I get back I want you to have this place cleaned up. Because basically the Duke doesn't want to get hated on by the people for you know cleaning up all the debauchery that's happening around that's them. that's an interesting interpretation of that you have there but keep going yeah anyway <laughs> um and so angelo has put claudio in prison and he's going to execute him for debauchery and um claudio appeals to his sister isabella to go to angelo and plead on his behalf because you know they weren't really doing the wrong thing um legally yes but you know they weren't really doing the wrong thing. It's not like they committed murder or something like that. And so it's this idea of, you know, is Angelo in the wrong for sentencing a young man and his soon-to-be wife to death because they had sex before their wedding day? But is Angelo also wrong to request Isabella to give up her virginity outside of marriage and become a whore to save her brother's life. And is it wrong for Isabella to say, no, I'm not prepared to give up my virginity because it's a blaspheme against my nunnery oath. What about you? Against your faith generally. Against your faith generally. But if she's not willing to do that, then why did she go and plead on her brother's behalf? Because technically he's, already committed that sin and so why is she holding herself to a higher standard than him and like there's yeah there's definitely there's definitely there's no demarcation there's no clear demarcation of who is the worst sinner and who is the most holy and, and and morally pure right like it is it is the grayest blurring of the line and there's no real clear well obviously that person should do that right yeah it's it's interesting i i think i'll start by saying in this discussion of themes i think this is a very self-consciously biblical play yeah um like the title itself is, is a reference to the sermon on the mount um it's asking all of these questions about the nature of mercy and sort of the ideas in the um the theology and the philosophy of justice that 
forgiveness and mercy are delegated to everyone and to judge in the end is is delegated to God, right? Mm. And I think that's how they're kind of showing the relationship between Angelo and the Duke, right? Angelo was corrupted by power and he does evil things and, you know, he had good intentions. Now, the road road to hell is paved with good intentions, but he had them nonetheless. He was doing what he thought his cousin, the Duke, would want. And so I think... But is that's, he that's, I, I think that is a um, there's a comparison there between the, the relationship of God to man and the relationship of the Duke to Angelo, right? Because yeah. there's you can definitely make an argument that the Duke put Angelo in that position. Yeah. Right. I think the play the the, the Globe did kind of goes out of its way to avoid exploring that. Yeah. Well. Um. But there. But it it is always definitely there. Yeah. Um. There's something in there about the nature of free will as well, right? Yeah. Um, but just because of of that sort of, he was put in that position by the Duke. Look, there's a lot in this play to unpack. There's so much in this play to unpack. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, to talk about, to take bring it back to this specific production, I don't feel like this production went 10 miles deep into exploring, you know, how the relationship between these two characters is an allegory for you know the ne- the relationship of man to god and free will but is it's that there. is that a problem though is it, it is a problem that i don't feel i went to 10 miles deep no it's, but here's, it's but, the globe it's but here's they're the not thing, trying though. to do that here's the thing though is that you know and and this is and this is where we come back to like how we opened the this episode of talking about the the use of shakespeare in our education system right because it is it is a critical piece of work that asks the viewer to ask questions after they've left the theater this is not entertainment for entertainment's sake yeah. and this is why plays like this are still so important to study and why they do have a modern relevant context because this is the type of theater that we want to make we want to make things that are going to make people go home and think about and debate and argue and philosophize because at the end of the day, these are big, huge questions that can't be answered in a five-act play or a 90-minute movie or, you know what I mean? Like, it is a constant, ongoing discussion for humanity to work out these things. And I think... That's why plays like this need to be studied. Like, I would argue that this is a more important play than, say, a Romeo and Juliet, right? Because I think this deals with... Like, don't get me wrong, I think Romeo and Juliet is important as well, but, for example, we're not talking about two young teenagers in this play. No. Right? And we don't have... The excuse that sometimes people use in Romeo and Juliet of going, these crazy kids, like these young, remember Juliet was only 13 and blah, 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 blah. Like these are fully functioning adults with. Adults who are in charge of a city, right? Who are in charge of a city. And they are still absolutely bollocksing up what they're in charge of. Yeah. 
or are they? And that's the question. Like, but that's this, the question. This, 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 and yeah. again, like, I mean, to be honest, listeners, we watched this movie. We watched the production nearly a week and a half ago. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like we were dragging our feet in recording this actual podcast episode, but I realized now that it was less of a dragging of the feet and more how on earth do we unpack all of the things that are in this into our podcast, which we're trying to keep under an hour <laughs> yeah. and and but, but... still be entertaining, but still try and ask, like, uh, what are these questions? What is this content? Yeah, there, there, there's so much to chew on, there's and so to, much. Look, and to bring it, let, let's let's dive out of the realm of thematic discussion now, and back into talking about the. Yeah, the, I need to go back into shallower waters. Yeah, the, yeah, the shallower <laughs> waters. Let's go back into shallow waters of this production. I don't think this production gets there really 100% of the time. You know, this is a hop skip and then a sort of a fall on your face that slides across the finish line. They get there, but it's not the most elegant it could be, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of part of the nature of the globe. I think the globe, the globe is always trying to create that sort of raucous entertainment feel, right? They want it to be fun. Yeah, and and this is this is a hell of a play to make fun. <sighs> you know, it's like fun, it's kind of like fun Schindler's list. It's not it's it's rough. <laughs> it is really rough. But before we move on to nitpicks and hot takes, I do just want to like have a quick discussion about a very interesting part of this play, yeah. which is at the end of the play after Angelo is punished and everyone's punished and everything goes in the duke proposes marriage or like he 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 propositions Isabella because he's had all this time with Isabella and he has the, he's had the same thing that um Angelo had where he's spent time with Isabella and been incredibly impressed by this woman and it's an incredibly fascinating thing because Isabella's response is not in the script so it is a choice made by every producer of this play, every director, every actor, to make a choice to see how that goes. And in this play, they have made the choice to make Isabella uncomfortable, but not definitely no, but definitely not yes. Yeah. And it's handled with a layer of a level of discomfort. And it's it's such an interesting uh, a chunk of this play. I, I think it's. I reckon you could take a dozen productions of Measure for Measure yeah. and look at how they handle that one line and th- those acting choices. And I think you'd learn a lot about the directors and a lot about how they ended up going with exploring these things. What did what did you think? I think that's an excellent topic for a university thesis. Oh yeah. <laughs> It'd be, you know what it'd be? It'd be a wonderful, like, 27-minute-long YouTube video. Yep. <laughs> Just, it, and that is for someone else to do. <laughs> yeah. It, look, in, in this in this specific thing, they didn't explore it a lot. Um, I feel like I, w- I would love to... I would love to have seen it taken more. And that's kind of how I feel generally about this particular production. I feel like they had, you know, an amazing pulpit and amazing material and they did 85 percent of the of the work to get there right and it wasn't and yet at the start of this you said it was a play that you really enjoyed i really like the play i'm not sure that i enjoyed this production oh, fair enough okay 
See, I'm perfectly clear in everything I do. There is no such thing as a as a Luke O'Hagan hypocrisy moment. Boom. And we'll be back right after this short ad break. Nitpicks and hot takes. Now, yes. I know you more than likely definitely have some because, I mean, it's you. Yeah. But <laughs> um, I don't know that I have any nitpicks necessarily. I do have one hot take, though. Um, taking the original premise that we've talked about quite a bit and viewing it through a modern le- lens, basically I feel like the summary of this play is that when leaders don't or can't lead well, then the people suffer and are left to the whims of the extremists. That's my hot take mic drop. Uh, it's interesting. Um, so, <laughs> Isabella, right, is such a wonderful example of how a woman's perspective is often so much more informed than a man's because of the the background there right like and it's it's it w- women know what oppression is like and men don't in a lot of circumstances oh, right yeah, I, and i'm not yeah. saying that's 100% of the case but this yeah. uh, i'm i'm saying that this that that's there i understand what you're trying to get and at, yes. as a brilliant intelligent articulate passionate woman who was being sent to a nunnery and who every time she is put in front of a powerful man they seek to exploit her i it makes me sad and especially you know today we're recording this on the day that uh supreme court justice ruth bader ginsburg died and that there's there's something to that. Yeah. There there is work. There was work to be done in sixteen hundred and God knows there's still work to be done now. Yeah. Um and the next deep important thing I'd like to talk about is actors walking through the audience before the play starts. <laughs> uh look, you said at the beginning you didn't like it. I don't like it. I never like it. It's to me, it's never made anything better. It's always just uncomfortable and look even sitting there watching a dvd of a performance i am internally wilding out over the (laughs) fact that they're doing this like why it's just it's not necessary and and the, the the other sort of uh brief nitpick i have about this is um the the young frankenstein moments now this is something we've actually spoken about in previous plays um at the globe as being a positive thing these running gags right mm. like the the kicking of the bucket in the previous play and whatnot. yeah there's actually uh, two or three of them in this play yeah and i just don't think it's necessary it's not you know not every joke has to be a running joke it's interesting because like i uh, it was obviously not enough to annoy me but I also haven't made any notes about it, and I don't remember what you're talking about. So clearly, yeah. it was it was. It's affected me more than you. Yeah, and look, it's just like it feels like they really like that young Frankenstein joke where every time Frau Blucher's name is said, the horse neighs, right? Yeah, and it was I've, definitely that kind of yeah. running gag. Yeah, and you can you can uh, 
you can do that too much, and that's yeah. all. That's all I really have to say about that. <laughs> it's um, apart from that, all of my problems with the play are far too big for the section in which this this exists, <laughs> and they're not really like they're they're less problems with the play and more sort of existential debates about the nature of, of mercy and God. So and that's prob- definitely prob- for a different podcast. Yeah, it's not really got anything to do with actors doing acting, so <laughs> that's fine. What uh, what quotes quotes that you liked from this? Yeah, I had two. Um, a character called Aeschylus says, some rise by sin, some by virtue fall, mm. which I thought was a wonderful dichotomy statement. Yeah. Uh, and the other one was by a comedic character, Tapster. Once, sir, there was nothing done to her once. Yeah. Which yeah. I just, I laughed at that. that I nothing just nothing that was like so a joke about loose women. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, to me, I've got, I've got a couple. There's um, uh, Claudio, the brother of um, Isabella, when he is sort of, uh, he is con- consigned himself to, to death. Yes. Um, he describes hell a la Dante's Inferno um, mm. in a monologue. Uh and he's like to bathe in fiery floods or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice. And there's, there's, there's quite a bit of it there. It's quite, it's a decent little monologue. It's very poetic. It's almost like a Shakespeare. It's weird. That. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, it's just really, really wonderfully, uh, really wonderfully crafted. Um, Aeschylus about uh, Pompeii. Mm. He says to him, Troth, and your bum is the greatest thing about you. So that in the beastliest sense, you are Pompeii the great. Um, that's a great butt joke <laughs> and, and excellent. Like it's that, that's that rarest of crossings between a butt joke and an ancient Rome joke. Right. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. Also there is an amazing, um, uh, title drop in this. Yeah. Like it, it's, I call it like the trailer moment, which is the moment at which he turns to the, turns to the, uh, the camera the says the title of the t- says the title of the play, and then it snaps to the the, the end of the play. Yeah, <laughs> this it's um a haste still plays haste, and leisure answers leisure like doth quit like, and measure still for measure. Would you watch this again? Um, there's a lot more I need to unpack in this play. <laughs> uh, I think I want to watch other versions of the play. I think I want to yeah. watch. I want to see other people do it. Yeah, I think I, I want to do this play. I want to be. Yeah. In it. I want. I want to put it on stage. There's just. There's so much, and it's such a relevant 2020 piece yeah. of theatre. Yeah. Like it's. There's so much to it. Um. The Globe version, maybe not so much, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. I think I probably could watch the Globe version again, but I think, um it would have to have some time removed and I definitely wouldn't watch the Taming of the Shoe just before it and I would probably have a glass of wine. But yeah. I agree. I, I I would like, I think it would be interesting to watch different versions of this um, and it could possibly climb the ladder to being close to my favourite Shakespeare play. Mm. Possibly. It's it's certainly it's certainly the chunkiest Shakespeare play. Yeah, yeah, it's it's... It's probably one that has themes and discussions that are somewhat close to my heart. 
uh, than other plays, closer to my heart than other other Shakespeare plays that we've watched. Yeah, there's there's there's. I mean, a met- I got pretty angry about Taming the Shrew. Yeah, there's a, there's a <laughs> there's a metaphor here about soup, right? There's a metaphor about like you know a smooth butternut puree yeah. that is easy to put down and it's sweet and lovely, and that's like much ado about nothing, right? It's just yeah. it's lovely the entire time, and then you've got this, which is like you know a, a chunky minestrone with big hunks of pancetta in it, and it's some of it's better than others, and it's a bit weird, but it's so much more interesting. Yeah. And interesting is such a virtue. Yeah. Interesting is such a virtue. That's what I always say. Um, Spears, go. <laughs> I'll give this one three and a half. It wasn't knock your socks off amazing, but it wasn't terrible either. Yeah. Uh, I um, If I rated shows based solely on my enjoyment of them, I would give this much more, many more Spears than if I rated them solely on the quality of the play. Yeah. And for the quality of this Globe production, three spears. But but I really liked it. And now, a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme. But you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. When wasteful war shall statues overturn and broils root out the work of masonry, nor Mars his sword nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory. Gainst death and all oblivious enmity, Shall you pace forth? Your praise shall still find room even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom. So till the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there, or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be watching the 2013 Royal Shakespeare Company performance of Richard II. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. Like doth quit like, and measure still for measure. And yeah, I, I, can I, I just, be picky for a sec? It's about duff, right? Yeah, you can. Uh, that's fine. Do you want to say it again? And I'll cut this conversation out and no. we'll put it in the bloopers. No, I want it to be doff. I no, said it's what not I said. Doth. I it's said what duff. I said. I standing by my decision. Look, look, Tammy. When we make bold acting choices, we have to stand by our bold acting choices. <laughs> Don't you try to direct me. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.